Hey guys, welcome to episode number 66 of the Mimi B Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Mimi Bouchard, and you're listening to the Mimi B Magazine podcast, a lifestyle podcast all on health, relationships, sex, career, and self-development. This podcast is designed to entertain, inspire, and to motivate you to become the best version of yourself possible. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hey guys, today I'm here with Dr. Megan Rossi. She is a registered dietitian and she has a PhD in gut health. So today I have her on the show to talk about, you guessed it, gut health. We're going to go into all the basics and we're going to let you guys know what you should be eating, what you shouldn't be eating and all of that jazz. Welcome Megan. Thank you so much for coming on. Not at all. Thanks for having me. I look forward to chatting more. I know, me too. So should we just start off and talk about your story a little bit? Because obviously you're really successful in this whole gut health world. Like you have 93,000 Instagram followers. Um, You have a really successful business, it seems. So how did you get started in this whole area? Yeah, well, I think it started, you know, inherently um, my focus on gut health. I grew up on a farm, actually. So I'm sure some of the listeners have picked up. I am Australian my slightly um, bogan accent there. Um, so I, I grew up on a farm where, you know, we had fresh vegetables, we played in dirt, all that sort of stuff, which is now we're finding out, I guess, the recipe for good gut health. Um, but I guess my first encounter with the gut, you know, more on a conscious level, uh, was when I was at university studying nutrition and dietetics. And it was actually quite a um, a negative um you know, finding with the gut and that my grandma, who I was really close with and had such an important part of my upbringing, actually passed away of bowel cancer. Um, so, yeah, I guess my first my first memory of the gut wasn't a very positive one. But I, um, after I graduated as a, as a dietitian, I was working in a hospital and it was really striking that all of my patients who actually had kidney disease were complaining of gut issues. And I thought, this is just doesn't make sense because the disease is in their kidney. So why are they complaining of gut issues? So I looked more into it and there really wasn't that much evidence at the time. It was back in 2010. Um, so I thought, you know what, I'm going to be that crazy person and dedicate the early, my early twenties to doing a PhD. And what that involved is really trying to come up with some of the evidence. So we did a clinical trial looking at whether we could improve people's health, um, gut health in particular, with diet. So giving things like probiotics, which is a good bacteria, as well as prebiotics, which is special food um, and dietary fibers for the bacteria, and whether we could give this uh, intervention to patients with kidney disease, whether we could then improve their kidney function. And after the three-year trial, we found actually it was a positive trial. There was clearly uh, a link between the gut and the kidneys. And, you know, I which just blew my mind because they're in very different parts of the body. Um, I was also very fortunate during my PhD to be the um, nutritionist for the Australian Olympic synchronized swimming team. And what I found there is that the girls who had the most uh, performance anxiety and a lot of stress were also complaining of gut issues. So then I got, you know, thinking actually maybe it's not just this gut-kidney relationship but also this gut-brain relationship. And that really opened up my mind to seeing that actually improving our gut health can improve the health of, 
you know, all our other organs and as well as, you know, our mental health, our heart health, etc. So from that stage, um, I was like, you know what, I, I really want to dedicate the rest of my career to helping people really improve their gut health to get whatever outcome they want to. Uh, so I moved over to the UK at that point because at King's College in London are internationally renowned for their, um, their, you know, research into gut health and in particular looking at dietary intervention. So with different foods and different types of um, supplements, how can we improve people's gut health? And that's, you know, whether someone's got a condition already such as irritable bowel syndrome, which affects about 10% of the UK population, or whether people just, you know, want to look at ways to improve the overall health and they don't actually have any gut issues, but can they make a few little tweaks here and there? Uh, and that, I guess, has led me to today, although um, I am rambling a little bit. Is that okay? <laughs> that is totally okay. Yeah. I love a good rambler. <laughs> <laughs> I am such a rambler. Um, I, that was probably a year into my post at King's um, doing research when cause I wasn't on, on social media at all and I wasn't really that engaged with the general public. Um I did have my own clinic, um, which I've now grown. It's the Gut Health Clinic. Um, but, yeah, I didn't really do that much social media. But a year into my post, I was like, you know what? It's We're doing so much cool research. And, you know, when I was explaining it to my friends and family who didn't have, you know, any background in science, they found it so interesting. I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, I didn't know that. How is, you know, how is that not getting out there? And I thought – it, I, I, yeah, I felt kind of selfish in a way that I wasn't really sharing all the amazing stuff being done, as well as, I guess, the media were kind of picking up on some of the, the negative aspects and I think making people's relationship with their gut health very confusing. And I, I started to see people, you know, taking overload on supplements and really restricting their diet, thinking they were doing good for their gut when actual fact they were triggering their gut symptoms and, um, yeah, I guess, you know, creating more of a negative relationship with their gut. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to get involved in social media. And I, yeah, I started that, I think, about a year and a half ago. Wow, that's amazing. And first of all, let's just go back to the gut and brain connection. I am like obsessed with learning about this. It's so true. And, you know, the past year I've had some gut issues and it does totally affect your mental health. Don't they say that your gut is like your second brain? Is that like a thing? I feel yeah, like no, that. no, that is a legitimate thing. And um, you know, I think we've known about this relationship between our gut and our brain, which and in sciencey world we call the gut brain axis. We've known about it for you know for so long because if you think about if you go to an interview or you do something that makes you nervous, often we first feel it in our gut. So we've known there's been a connection there, but it's only been more recent where I think we've seen that there's a new player in that gut brain axis, and it's the fact that each and every single one of us has trillions of bacteria living in our gut. And these bacteria can send um, messages up to our brain and have this two-way communication effect. Every second or so, they're communicating our gut and our brain. Yeah, that's so true. Like when I feel anxious, I have this tightness in my stomach and I feel really nauseous. Is that because my gut um, is kind of like, I don't know, all tense and then it sends that signal to my brain to be more stressed? Is that a thing? How does that work? Yeah, so it's like a bi-directional communication. Initially, it's the mental um, thoughts that are then being triggered down uh, and communicating with our gut that we're under stress or, um, you know, we, we need to, you know, prepare for flight. 
um, to run away from something. It's like an old instinct, and that can create a lot of the blood that normally feeds our gut to move away from our gut, and that triggers kind of those butterflies and that tense feeling in our gut. Um, so, yeah, no, it is a very real thing, and there's been some striking research where they've actually shown that if they give a probiotic to remember that saliva bacteria um, to a group of participants and then they before they give it to them actually they scan to their brain and look at what parts of the brain get activated when they get shown you know negative images and then they've given uh, the group participants a probiotic every day for the following six weeks and they've got them to come back and they've shown them the same images and see that a different part of their brain is activated, showing that that probiotic actually had a really, um, yeah, had a had a change on you know our mental activity there. And what's really important with that study is actually had a placebo group. So a placebo is like a fake intervention. So it wasn't that just people like, oh, I'm taking a probiotic and then change their thought patterns. That way, mechanistically, something was happening because we didn't see those brain changes in those who had the fake intervention that thought they were on, you know, a probiotic. That is so cool. So you could kind of say that like a good probiotic is almost like an antidepressant. <laughs> yeah, but you know what is even more powerful, I think, is that there was a recent study, which is, and I don't want to get too sciencey, but I just think it's so powerful to see these studies actually being done because it's not just one person saying, oh, it worked for me. We do it in a very controlled manner and we can see the mechanisms behind it. And instead of supplements, these people actually just got a diet. And I think that's so much more effective because you know food one of the most important things about food is that we enjoy the taste it's a social thing um so why not you know look after our gut health and mental health using food first before we have to go to supplements and what they mm-hmm. did is um they actually took a, a group of people who had depression and they uh, uh randomized the participants so they gave one group of the participants a mediterranean diet and i'll talk more about what that diet is and the other group, they gave them um, like a befriending type of counselling, and we call that counselling type the placebo. So making sure that the effect of the diet wasn't just because they were seeing a dietitian who was delivering the diet, um, but it was actually the food per se. So they had that counselling as the other group got that as a placebo. And then after um, each of the groups got seven interventions, so they saw the dietitian or the counsellor seven times over 12 weeks, and then they got them to come back, and they found that, over 30% of people in the diet group actually had a significant improvement in their depression levels that they would no longer be classified as clinically depressed, whereas in the placebo group, only 8% um, achieved that change. So I think, again, that's so powerful to show that actually diet is having a really big impact on our mental health, although just with that study, they all did stay on their medications. So if you're on medication, definitely don't you know, stop your medication and think you can solve everything with diet, but as an additional therapy, I think it's very powerful. And what's so, you know, I guess, boosting about the Mediterranean diet is that it provides 50 grams of fiber a day. And it's 50. That's what it is. Yeah. Because what I know from the Mediterranean diet, I know it's more like, you know, olive oil, fish, vegetables, and it's very clean, kind of simple foods. That's what I have learned previously about it. But tell me the exact Mediterranean diet and why it's so beneficial. Yeah, you're right. Like the extra virgin olive oil is really important aspect of the Mediterranean diet because it's got these things called polyphenols in them so it's like a plant chemical which feeds the good bacteria uh, so that's like another type of 
food for the bacteria, these Wait, polyphenols. Doesn't, doesn't red wine have polyphenols? Please it say does. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So 100 mils of red wine a day has actually been linked uh, with um, more diverse gut bacteria, which we think is beneficial for us. Although if we overdo the alcohol, then we may take away some of those benefits. Um but yeah, the Mediterranean diet is, you know, grounded, I guess, mainly in plants. So heaps of veggies, whole grains, legumes, nuts, seeds, um, oily fish, as you mentioned, fermented dairies in there as well. Um, and the average or the recommendations in the UK for fiber is 30 grams a day. So this the Mediterranean diet actually gives us 50 grams a day. And in the UK, the average person has around 20 grams of fiber a day. Uh, so we're certainly not meeting our fiber uh, needs. And the really cool thing about dietary fiber, which is found in all our plant-based foods, is that it actually has no benefit for human cells. So human cells can't actually metabolize it. The whole purpose of dietary fiber is actually to feed that community of those trillions of microbes living in our gut. So that's probably why plant-based foods are so good for us because it's feeding the community of bacteria, which we know can talk to our brain, can talk to our kidneys, can talk to our heart uh, and the rest of it. So can can this fiber, if, if I eat a lot of fiber, can it also feed the bad uh, gut bacteria inside of me or is it really just that beneficial for the good gut bacteria? So, yeah, it's, it's a really tricky um, area in terms of what is good and bad. And what we're actually seeing is that there's no such thing well, there is some, you know, a very small percent of microbes were actually bad, but that's only about 1% of them. And um, what we're seeing is even things like um, people are quite scared of yeast, uh, but yeast is actually quite beneficial in a small degree in our gut. So most of us have yeast living in us and is actually doing a lot of benefit for us. But it's once that yeast gets overgrown, we think may not be beneficial. And the same with the other microbes, if they overgrow. Uh, so what we see is if you're having a really high-fibre diet, it kind of feeds the microbes evenly um, rather than just feeding uh, you know, a certain group and therefore letting them overgrow. So it's more about what we want in our gut is as many different types of microbes as we can. And I say microbes, that includes mainly bacteria, but also yeast and viruses also live in the gut uh, and actually have this synergistic beneficial role. So they work together to look after us. So it's not about one being good or bad. It's about getting that balance right. And, um, yeah. So how do you make sure that you have that balance? Because for me, like I said, like I had gut issues last year and I had an overgrowth of like a bad bacteria. I got like a test done and I had to take some supplements for a certain amount of time to get rid of it. Now I'm back to being healthy, which is great. But like I was eating so healthy and I think it was stress related, to be honest, because looking back when those gut issues started last year, it was like this really, really stressful time in my life. But like, how can you ensure that there's, there's that balance that's maintained. Yeah, absolutely. And I do get this a lot in my clinic where people come to me initially with, you know, really amazing diets and they're like, how, how am I getting gut symptoms? It's really not fair. And the thing with gut health is that it's very much a holistic, uh, 
type of um, outcome. So you can't just, even if you've got, you know, the best gut boosting diet, if you're not looking after your stress levels, uh, then you're not going to have good gut health. Because remember, stress levels is our brain um, communicating with our gut microbes. So we can feed it really great nurturing things, but if our brain's sending our gut um, bad messages that we're really stressed and anxious, then our gut's not going to work very well. So uh, there's uh, also been a how me- do you how do you reduce the stress though? <laughs> yeah, no, no, and there's there's been some really fantastic studies in people with irritable bowel syndrome. Do you know much about irritable bowel syndrome? I don't, but my sister just got diagnosed with it, so I want to know more about it. Yeah, so uh, irritable bowel syndrome is something that affects so many of us. Like I said, around ten percent. Uh, of adults in the UK. And to get diagnosed of irritable bowel syndrome, firstly, you need to make sure um, you don't have celiac disease. Now, celiac disease is what we call an autoimmune condition to gluten. And it's really important you rule that out because half a million people in the UK actually are living with uh, celiac disease and they don't actually know they have it because they go, oh, I get any gut symptoms, but you know, I'll just put it down to IBS. So it's really, really important that if you're getting things like stomach pain, um, you know, bloating, diarrhea, even a bit of constipation, if you have low, low uh, blood iron levels, those sorts of things all suggest you should definitely go and see your GP. Um, and your GP is able to then do a test to check for celiac disease. But one of the things for that test to be valid is you actually have to have a decent amount of gluten in your diet. So if you take gluten away in your diet, you do the blood test, then it will say, oh, actually, no, you don't have it. But in fact, you could if you were having more gluten. That's just really important. You've got plenty of gluten in that leading up to that test. Now, if you uh, have the test and, and if, you know, you determine actually, no, I don't have celiac disease, but you fulfill this criteria for IBS, which is you have to have stomach pain at least one day a week, um, every week for at least three to six months. So it has to be like a chronic condition. And then the pain has to be linked with your stools in some sort of way, whether it's that, you know, your stools alternate and get, um, you know, really loose or really hard or they're one way or the other. Or, you know, the pain is brought on when you uh, pass a bowel movement or it's, um, you know, relieved. So it has to be some link. So it's a stomach pain and some sort of link with your um, stools. So that's, the, I guess, diagnostic criteria for irritable bowel syndrome. Um, and... So how, um, for IBS, how can you get rid of it? Or is it kind of that, that kind of thing that stays forever and you can just make it better, but it never fully goes away? Yeah. So when we look at the research studies, we say that there's, there's no real understanding per se of, uh, of how we can cure, but we know how to manage the symptoms. And with IBS, it's really quite a, an interesting um, condition because it can be caused or your risk of getting it is increased by so many different factors. For example, if you get a gut infection when you're traveling abroad, the following year you've got a fourfold increased risk of developing IBS. But also if you are subjected to physical or um, even mental trauma, you also have an increased risk of getting irritable bowel syndrome. So there's a number of different factors. And what we know is that for the management, um, diet certainly has a, has a big role in that and it is one of the main things I see people for in clinic. But if we want to look at the underlying causes um, of irritable bowel syndrome and really trying to, I guess, cure people, one of the things I see working the best is really looking at mindfulness techniques. 
Uh, so in my clinic, I always get people along with specific types of dietary um, exclusions. Uh, depending on that individual, I also get them to do 15 minutes of headspace or a mindfulness app every single day. And what we see that kind of helps um, deactivate this overstimulated gut brain axis. And the underlying, uh, I guess, understanding of the mechanisms of IBS is that there is this dysfunction between our gut and our brain. So the messages aren't quite clear that are going between them. So I find the mindfulness really powerful strategy uh, to help, you know, I guess, improve that communication between our gut and our brain. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I totally agree when, when you're just mindful and kind of living more in the moment, um, other than stressing and worrying for future things to happen. Um, it definitely helps. And that's a for sure. So my question for you, Megan, is what are some things that we should never be eating for our gut health? Obviously, you said like an excessive alcohol is really bad, but are there certain foods that are just like killers for your gut or a little bit of everything is okay? Yeah, look, there isn't one thing that is going to devastate your gut overall. It's, you know, as boring as it sounds, it is definitely about balance. Um, What we see is if you're having more whole foods and and not relying so much on, you know, prepackaged foods, you're probably going to have better gut health. I also think it's more looking about what you can include to boost your overall gut health. And one of the strategies I suggest to a lot of my clients is that to um, try aim for at least 30 different plant-based foods a week. Now, you know, on the face of that can sound rather intimidating, but that includes things like different types of um, nuts and seeds, legumes, whole grains, vegetables and fruit, herbs and spices. So a little tip, you know, if you usually put on your breakfast something like a pumpkin seed, why not get the uh, the seed mix which has got four different varieties in it? That way you're getting your pumpkin seeds but you're also getting your sesame seeds and your linseeds and maybe your chia seeds because each type of seed it actually contains different types of beneficial fibres and those polyphenols which can feed different types of bacteria and help diversify the microbes in your gut. Similarly with legumes, so instead of just getting chickpeas, why not get that four bean mix where you've got the different types in there like the um, butter beans and the kidney beans, etc. So just little things like that about trying to diversify your your diet, I think, uh, can have a really uh, big impact. Okay, okay, I see. Um, What do you think about elimination diets? Because that's also a big topic when trying to kind of clear um, all the bad stuff from your gut. And I've heard about this a lot, like doing the FODMAP diet. What do you think about that? So when it comes to elimination diets, I think it can be very powerful when done right. Uh, In fact, one of the the clinical... um, diets that I use with some patients with very severe irritable bowel syndrome is called a low FODMAP diet. And what that is, is a restrictive uh, exclusion diet where we restrict things for four to six weeks and then we reintroduce them and find out which group people are more sensitive to. Um, But what's really important is that people don't restrict their diet for any longer than four to six weeks. That can actually, in a way, starve their gut microbes. And we do see that in our clinical trials where even the low FODMAP diet, which we use in clinical practice, it, it does actually decrease some of your beneficial microbes. So people certainly shouldn't be doing them for very long at all. Um, but I find that only about 20% of the people I see need to go to that elimination diet. Uh, I think, yeah, it, 
also can create a lot of um, a negative relationship uh, between yourself and food. And people, if not done correctly, can actually start to fear food and then that fear actually can exacerbate their gut symptoms, uh, which can be quite a vicious cycle because then people cut more foods out of their diet, they decrease the variety, so then they narrow down the microbes and therefore the communication between the gut and the brain may actually uh, be worse in the long run. Mm, okay, I get that. Um, what about, because we were talking about probiotics earlier, do you suggest a certain probiotic um, to all of your clients? And like, should we be taking one a day, two a day? What's the deal with that? Yeah, so probiotics, it's such an interesting area and we're doing more and more research on it. But I think one of the important um, concepts when it comes to probiotics, that each different type of probiotic actually can do different things. So in a way, we should be looking at probiotics similar to we'd look at vitamins or even medications. You know, you wouldn't go and give someone vitamin C supplements if they've got vitamin A deficiency. Um, and the same goes with probiotics. So we need to look at the individual type of probiotic and match it to whatever someone's symptom is. Now, that can be very different. Um, so if if someone has irritable bowel syndrome, there's four different brands in the UK which have shown a benefit um, in people with that condition. So they are VSL3, Biocult, Alpharex, and Simprove are the four. Uh, so I you know, recommend them, and, and it really depends on um, the patient's situation as to which type because some are liquid so they can't trouble with them and others you have to take longer uh, or short. So the thing with probiotics, I don't think if you're generally healthy, you should be taking them, um, but there is some benefit for specific scenarios. Also, if you take antibiotics, there's some good evidence for taking a specific type of probiotic, uh, and that one's Saccharomyces boulardii, and I would recommend uh, you take that during your antibiotic course at a dose of five CFUs uh, Per day. Now, I know that sounds very prescriptive, um, but that's how we need to treat probiotics is, you know, in that prescriptive way. And when I say CFU, that's just how we measure probiotics. So similar to we measure protein in grams, we measure bacteria in this unit called CFUs. Interesting. Yeah, the, the thing about <laughs> this is what to take in that. I know, I know. Taken. But the thing about the antibiotics is so true. Like I had to be on antibiotics like three months ago, and it took me so long to kind of get back to being normal in my gut. Um, you know, I'm actually really curious. I know this is kind of a gross topic, but obviously you talk about it often. But like, what should our movements be looking like when we go to the bathroom? Like, what is a sign of good gut health? Um, and then what's a sign of, of bad gut health? Yeah, this is actually my favorite topic. And I pretty much talk about it every single day. So, no, no, bring that sort of talk on. So, what we would consider as normal, so there's two different aspects, I guess, of the poop. One can be how often you go to the toilet. So, if you um, move your bowels anywhere between um, three times a day, and three times a week, anywhere in between that, we would say that is typically normal. So it's quite a big range. If you're opening your bowels more than three times a day, or if you're opening your bowels less than three times a week, in those scenarios, I would say there's certainly some things we could sort out. Um, and it's probably indicative of 
that things aren't quite right with your gut health. Now, the other thing is the consistency of your poop. So what does it actually look like? And my favorite tool there, so um, if you've got some show notes, I'll send you a link to it, but it's called the um, Bristol Stool Form Chart. And it's a scale of one to seven. Where seven is kind of like watery diarrhea, and one is like little Maltesables, so very, very hard. And on that scale, we say that a type five, four, and three is typically normal. But if you're a type one or two, which is the hard end, or type six and seven, which is the very loose end, again, there's certain things we could be changing uh, in your diet and lifestyle to help improve that. Interesting. That is so, so interesting. So it's crazy that you say that that the the minimum is three times a week. Like I thought that once a day was normal or twice a day was really good, but like I, I can't remember the last time I didn't go in one whole day. Yeah, and that's it's so individualized for people because um, it, it depends on how fast our gut moves, um, you know, how old we are how much food we're actually ingesting, all those sorts of things. So, yeah, there's a lot of variability into what is considered normal. And also we find that um, consistency of people's poop. So, you know, very few of us have the exact same number as in whether it's the Bristol stool form chart type, you know, three or four or five every single day can alternate. And, again, that is normal. So one of the things I think is important as we hear more about gut health is people don't freak out too much around you know if one day their poop might be a little bit looser than the others um you know a bit of variability is okay it's more if it's a chronic ongoing thing and it's actually starting to impact your quality of life that's you know worth seeking some help Mm -hmm. so it seems like you are just the healthiest person ever gut health wise what do you eat Mm. in a day like what does your diet look like oh thank you very much i guess i certainly do um live and breathe what I what I suggest to people and my day starts out with always fermented um oats so I make it the night before and I just there's just something about that routine that I really love and um, so I make my own kefir which is literally the easiest thing in the entire world and I've got all the recipes in my book coming out which I'm super excited about um so I just put my oats with a different uh, a range of different types of nuts and seeds and cinnamon and um, usually banana and dates and I mush all that up and I add some of my homemade kefir uh, about 100 mils of my kefir and then I add some water and then I mush it all up and then I put it on this little heat mat and what that does is really help bacteria start to ferment it and then in the morning I wake up and my fermented oats have actually doubled in size because the fermentation has occurred and has made it rise. So it's really cool to be able to see. Um, so I have that for my breakfast and then, um, uh, you know, morning tea or probably – I am a snacker. You don't have to be a snacker to have good gut health. You know, it's up to the individual. Um, but I'd usually have some fruit and probably some dark chocolate. I do do love some dark chocolate. Uh, for my lunch um, – it can be really variable. A lot of it is based around plants. So, so whether it's a salad with some quinoa and some mixed legumes in there, so whether it's chickpeas and um, kidney beans, etc. cetera. Uh, and then for, for my afternoon snack, I usually have some sort of 
fermented dairy. So often it's just a, a tub of yogurt and I probably add a little bit of um, seeds in there as well just to get a bit of texture because I really love that. Um, for dinner, it's again so variable. It could be, you know, a stir fry, it could be a curry. Again, most of it is plant-based. Um, probably, you know, three days a week I will have um, – either chicken or fish, and then I also often have eggs. So I'm certainly not um, vegetarian, uh, but I most of my diet is plant-based, and I really do try to get that, that variability in um, in terms of the different types of fruit and veg and not just rely on the same things. And then, yeah, my dessert, I'll always fin- finish the day with some fruit because I um, do have a bit of a sweet tooth and, you know, fruit is great for a gut bacteria. Amazing. I love that so much. So – we are finishing the episode or we're up to the end of the episode now. Is there anything that you're doing at the moment that you'd like to tell our listeners about? I heard that you have just released your book, which is amazing. How do we find that book? So, no, no, I haven't released it yet. Oh. It's available for pre-order. Yeah, yeah, it's all the the lead up to, which is, yeah, so exciting. Um, so it's available on Amazon and it's called The Gut Health Doctor. Um, an easy guide to health from the inside out. Amazing. <laughs> um, and that, yeah, I'm really pumped about it because it's, it's not just that it's got like 50 different recipes in there, really easy recipes because I'm certainly no chef. It's more of, you know, busy people. And for people who kind of are very new to fermenting, how to actually start to get into it, um, as well as, you know, just quick and easy recipes. Um, but then there's also a big chunk on, you know, how to – get over some symptoms, whether it is the case that you do have irritable bowel syndrome or you might have a a chronic bowel condition like inflammatory bowel disease, or it might just be something like, you know, you're getting bloating all the time. It's really frustrating. What are some top tips that you can do for that? Or, you know, you're a little bit more on the constipated side, which is again bothering you. What are some things you can tweak in your diet and your lifestyle? And there's also things like, um, you know, embracing sleep strategies and yoga strategies so I'm involved a whole lot of different experts so hopefully it's like a little bible to your gut health amazing I love that and your Instagram is at the gut health doctor I believe um and what's your website the same thing uh yeah so the gut health doctor.com Amazing. Thank you so much, Megan. I learned so much in today's episode and I hope the listeners did too. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a blast.